Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 9 once again. Hebrews 9. We'll look this morning at verses 23 to uh, 28, the end of the chapter. Hebrews 9:23. There's a little worship song which we sometimes sing, which sets forth the gospel in the very simplest of terms. You know it, it goes like this. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. I like that little song. It's upbeat, festive, celebratory, and it's true. But I fear that the reason we like such songs so much is that they reduce the gospel to something so simple it requires no thought. Well, in reality, the gospel, even when stated simply, boggles our minds and ultimately proves to be unfathomable at many points. It's that profound, mind-boggling statement of the gospel which we will run into in our text this morning. Let me read it, verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood, with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Last week we uh, uh, considered why Jesus had to die. And we talked about uh, Moses sprinkling blood on everything and Everyone, as God's covenant was made at Mount Sinai and as the tabernacle was then uh, dedicated, consecrated there in the wilderness. For without the shedding of blood, nothing was cleansed from defilement. Now as we go on to this last paragraph in uh, chapter 9, we see more explicitly what Jesus' death has done and is doing and will do. The passage teaches us three great truths that encompass the work of Jesus. Now, I'm going to take them in chronological order just for the sake of being more, for a more coherent uh, presentation. But the first point is actually the middle point of the three truths. And, and it's rightfully in the middle, for it's the central truth of the whole passage. But it's also right for us to consider it first, because it is this truth upon which everything else is built. Which brings us then to the very first truth that we find here, which is this. Jesus 
obliterated our sin. Jesus obliterated our sin. We have kids taking notes every morning. I'm always concerned that the words I use in the main points are words kids can understand as they take notes. So I've been a little concerned about this word obliterated. But just as an aside, you know, I get notes every week, and I seldom get notes from all these boys in our congregation. More boys than girls give me notes. I seldom have a week that, that at least one set of notes on the back of these wonderful notes has been depicted a great battle scene. <laughs> Tanks and fighter jets and swords flashing and dragons falling and the such. Boys are like that, you know. In spite of our concerted effort in our day to make boys like little girls, they persist in being boys. And built into boys seems to be a desire to conquer and destroy the bad guys. So I bet a lot of our kids, at least the boys, know the word obliterate. It means to so completely destroy that no trace is left. That's what Jesus has done about our sin. Obliterated it forever. We read that in verses 26 and 28. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And later having been offered once to bear the sins of many. We've already talked about Jesus dealing with sin. We've seen how Jesus by his death fulfilled all the pictures and symbols of the Old Testament ceremonies. We've seen how Jesus forgives the unforgivable, the things that could not be addressed by the law of Moses. We've seen how Jesus shed his own blood, for without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But today we go even deeper into the significance of Jesus' death, how he has completely defeated sin for us. Now there are three key words that make that point. First, in verse 28, we read that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. There's a word for forgiveness, which means just to remove the burden, to ease the burden. That's an easy word. It's used a lot of time. It's translated forgiven. This is a more intense word. The word translated take away is the word that Isaiah used when he was describing Jesus' coming death on the cross, and he says he will bear their iniquities. Here's a great picture. Sin is seen as a terrible burden, a burden that we cannot carry, a burden that buckles our knees, a burden that drives us to the ground. And Jesus shows up, and he takes this burden upon himself and gets it out of here, takes it away. Which I could see this, uh, what Jesus has done to sin in verse 26, where we read what sounds like a similar statement. He has appeared once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is an even more powerful word. It's translated as a verb, but it's really not a verb. It's a noun. It means annulment, removal, nullification. We could read it this way. He has appeared once for all for the purpose of annulment of our sin. Like I said, Jesus 
has obliterated sin. And then third, in verse 26, we read the word once for all. My lexicon says that this word once is, quote, used in the New Testament for Christ's unique and unrepeatable work. You know, there's nothing in the law of Moses that was ever once for all. Those sacrifices were repeated endlessly, day after day, month after month, year after year, for hundreds of years. But not the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. By his once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus obliterated sin forever. So Thomas Long writes, Jesus is not condemned to an eternity of crucifixions, a ceaseless round of suffering, a never-ending and always unfinished series of little atonements. No. The work of redemption is done, finished, complete. As the old hymn says, the strife is over, the battle done, the victory of life is won, the song of triumph has begun. Hallelujah. Oh, dear people, we dare not miss this. And sometimes the church has missed this. It has acted as if somehow Jesus' death on the cross were not enough. As if sin needed to be atoned for again in some way. Catholics have written such things into the creeds of their church many years ago. That in the Mass, Jesus is being re-crucified again and again in the bread and wine on the altar. Now Protestants say, oh, that's wrong, we reject that. But in practice, Protestants seem to also think there's something else we have to add to the work of Jesus to be forgiven. We have to have more regular devotions. We have to fill our calendar with church activities. We have to make sure we tithe our money properly. We have to maybe go into the ministry or go be a missionary on the mission field. Those things may be well and good, but they do not make up for our sins. They do not earn us God's favor. You're either accepted by God because he is pleased with Jesus once for all sacrifice which you're trusting in. Or you're still estranged from God even if you're a missionary halfway around the world. Tom Wright tells of a bride who exclaimed after a perfect wedding day, oh, it was such a great day. I'd really like to do it all over again. But you see, that misses the whole point. To repeat that wedding would be to show that you hadn't understood what happened or that somehow it hadn't worked the first time. Similarly, Jesus' death on the cross for sinners is enough. There's no do-over. None is ever needed. He has obliterated our sin once for all. I love Keith Green's take on this. When he sings, my son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what I've done for you. I did it all when I was dying. Rest in your faith. My peace will come to you. There's nothing to do, you see, but to trust in Jesus. Oh, this is not a rationalization for tolerating sin in our life. No, this is a reason we do not have to tolerate it anymore. This is the basis upon which we can say no to ungodliness. Once for all, Jesus has carried away our burden. He has annulled our sin. He has obliterated it forever.
That's the first great truth, the central truth of this passage. Then there's a second truth. Jesus made peace in heaven. Jesus made peace in heaven. One of the most precious promises Jesus ever made is found in John 14, where he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know exactly what that means, do you? I hear cute little things like, if God can make the world in six days, a place he can prepare in 2,000 years. But what needs preparing anyway? It's heaven, hey? It's heaven. It makes no sense that anything has to be prepared. Well, here in Hebrews 9, we get into a similar problem. Verses 23 and 24 speak of Jesus entering not an earthly temple, but heaven itself. He didn't just enter a copy of the sanctuary. He entered the true sanctuary, the very presence of God in heaven. As a high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for sin, Jesus entered heaven to present an offering of himself for sin. As Moses sprinkled the tabernacle with blood to sanctify it, so Jesus purifies the heavenly realities by his once-for-all sacrifice. What on earth does that mean? Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. Boy, that's an understatement. There's so much we don't understand. What did Jesus enter heaven to do? There are a lot of answers we understand to intercede for us. Oh, that's great. To reign, that's great. But in what sense did he need to purify the heavenly things of which the earthly tabernacle was only a, a, a picture? Philip Hughes, who wrote the best commentary I have on the book of Hebrews, takes pa- several pages to explain in detail four possible interpretations of these verses. And then he concludes by do- not embracing any of them. I love commentaries like that. You read several pages, and he says, well, whatever. <laughs> he just left it hanging as if, as if it were not important. Now, I'm not smarter than my former instructor, Philip Hughes, or any of those great scholars, but I think God intends for us to understand the impact of this text, though the details may remain somewhat incomprehensible to us. I think what these verses are teaching is simply that Jesus entered heaven to make peace. Jesus entered heaven to make peace. (laughs) Let me explain. Here's the crucial question. Did anything change in heaven when sin entered the world? Did anything change in heaven when sin entered the world? Obviously, everything changed on earth. A curse came upon the earth. Relationships were alienated. Death came. Every aspect of the creation was disruption, or disrupted. But was anything different in the holy presence of God? Well, God certainly does not change. He didn't change a bit. 
But I think the scriptures seem to indicate that there was a change in heaven. Some things that I think of. The entrance of sin broke the fellowship between God in heaven and the creatures made in his image on the earth. God began to carry an unpaid debt of sin that his creature had racked up. Satan began to present himself along with God's holy angels to accuse God. Indeed, Revelation 12 tells us there's a war in heaven. So Michael, the archangel, took on the evil dragon, Satan. And from the earth, the cries of suffering saints began to be heard in heaven. Oh Lord, how long, they cried. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, they cried. And since sin entered the picture, all of God's providence has been focused on bringing about his will, not easily, but in the midst of evil. Franz Delitzsch, the German theologian, was not entirely wrong when he wrote that heaven needed cleansing in the sense that the light of God's love had been darkened by the cloud of his wrath against sin. You see, to think that nothing has changed in heaven would be like thinking that your child might openly rebel and run away and you not know what was happening with them or know that the worst was happening and nothing changed at all? Impossible. Impossible. Oh, this is mysterious to us. We can't fathom it. But it's important for us to acknowledge that, acknowledge the cosmic implications of man's sin. The problem is not that just man has a debt and he needs some help to pay it. Oh no. The whole cosmos, the heavens itself, has been affected and needs restoration. God's holiness has been assaulted. He is estranged from his creation. His wrath hangs over everything that once only knew his loving delight. How foolish for people to think that their petty little good works, being nice, giving to, giving to the poor, could somehow make things right with God when there's been such total rupture in God's relationship to us. That's like offering a sympathy card to someone whose whole family you just killed, thinking it would make everything okay. But Jesus does make everything okay again. He didn't just enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem to forestay God's wrath. He entered heaven literally before the face of God. He entered to present the sacrifice of himself in payment for our sin. He entered as the only mediator between God and man, the one who makes peace through the blood of his cross. He entered to propitiate, to satisfy the holiness of God. 
As the Spirit says in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Could this be, strange as it is, mysterious as it is to us, could this be what Jesus had in mind when he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus entered heaven to make peace. And folks, this heavenly mediating work of Jesus ought to change our lives. Because of Jesus, God is not set against us anymore. Because of Jesus, God claims as his children those who trust him. Because of Jesus, fellowship with the Father is restored. As the Spirit says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For Jesus made peace in heaven. Finally, there's a third truth here. Jesus is coming to save us. Jesus is coming to save us. In verse 27, we find what sounds like a truism. A man is destined to die once and after that the judgment. Nowadays, we live in a secular world, and many people we know would only agree with the fact that we will die. The idea of judgment, indeed the very idea of a judge, uh, is widely rejected in our day. But among religious people, this statement would be be readily accepted. The certainty of death and judgment to follow is believed by Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and, and virtually every other religion. So when the writer of Hebrews makes this statement that a man dies once and after that the judgment, it probably didn't even get anyone's attention. Such preaching and teaching was common in churches and synagogues and the philosophers of that day. But Hebrews does not just stop with that. Death and then judgment. Oh no. The writer goes on to unfold the glorious implications of the truths which have been taught in this chapter. Yes, we're going to die someday, even those whose faith is in Jesus But by Jesus, once for all, death himself, our sin has been forgiven. The power and continuing presence of sin has been nullified, obliterated. And by Jesus' entrance into heaven, God has been satisfied. Peace has been won. So that now, the burden of sin has been carried away. And the peace of reconciliation has been mediated by our Savior. Well then, there's no longer any basis for judgment. There's no reason to tremble in fear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, when Jesus appears a second time, he comes to bring salvation to those who are waiting in faith. While sending his angels out to round up the wicked sinners for judgment, Jesus calls his own, his brothers and sisters, to take them home with him to glory. So for those who believe in Jesus and eagerly await his coming, 
It is no longer a man is destined to die once and then face judgment. For believers, the truth now is, it is appointed by God that Jesus died once for all and then comes with saving mercy. Jesus is coming to save us. Actually, there's a parallel to this in the uh, Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest offered the sacrifice out in the courtyard in view of all the people, and then he went into the holy place and on into the Holy of Holies, out of everyone's view, entirely alone in God's presence, where the atonement sacrifice was made. While he was there, the people waited expectantly. He was in there for them. He bore their names on his clothes. He bore the sacrifice for their sins in his hands. Would God find that acceptable? Actually, we've heard, we know that the high priest wore bells on the bottom of his clothing so that people could hear him moving around in there and know that he was still alive where sinful men cannot stand in the presence of God's holiness, you know. And then he would come out again. God had accepted the sacrifice. God had received the prayers. The people were reconciled. That's similar to our situation right now. Jesus made atonement for our sins on the cross, hanging in public view between heaven and earth. Then he ascended into heaven and he dwells in the Father's presence on our behalf, praying and interceding for us. But one day he will return not to make another sacrifice for sins, but to finish our salvation, to complete his work by taking us home forever. And meanwhile, we wait expectantly, trusting that Jesus is enough, maintaining our faith and hope in him, knowing that Jesus is coming to save us. Do you have such hope? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Have you put your trust in Jesus who bore your sins away? Do you know the Savior who has gone into heaven to prepare a place for us? Are you waiting, waiting expectantly for his return, confident that, 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 that you will stand on that day forgiven? Well, this morning we ought to be encouraged by these three truths. That by his death, Jesus has obliterated our sin. That he ascended into heaven to make peace. And that someday he's coming again to save us. This morning I call you again to follow Jesus. To abandon your treasured sins and entrust yourself to him. To trust that his death on the cross is enough to save you. And to expect him to keep the promises he made. When he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that the gospel is simple enough that we can teach it to our four-year-old. But we're reminded that we haven't begun to understand everything. And so may we not uh, 
back away when we come into a passage of your word that uh, talks about things mysterious to us and, and, and goes into stuff that we can't get our minds around, but may we still hold fast to the gospel and see us as you unpack it for us. We pray that would be the case with this text this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your payment for our sin. That you haven't just glossed over it. That you've annulled it, removed it, defeated it. May we live that way. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've entered heaven, the great mediator, to make peace. May we live in fellowship with you, with the Father. May we stop living as beggars and live as your children. Thank you for the promise of your coming. Oh Lord, may we be not, not be so caught up in the glorious things of this earth that we miss the glory to come. But may we wait expectantly and labor faithfully in the time that you give us until you come. Thank you that your coming is to bring us salvation, not to judge us and throw us away. Thank you for that Jesus has made that true. In his name we pray. Amen.